Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of Fahrenheit 451. In the first half of the book, and in the lecture that I prepared that turned out to be way too long about the first half in the book, we focused primarily on the way that the world that Bradbury presents to us is set up, though how it has come about through the long speech that we get from Captain Beatty especially, as well as what each of the characters in this world represent to us, specifically um, Beatty as this upholder, the sort of enforcer of this world's happiness machine, Mildred as kind of its victim-slash-willing sort of participant and complicit perpetrator, um, Clarice as the sort of metaphorical and symbolic antithesis to this entire world, who is herself victimized by it and killed as a consequence of her not being able to function in this world, and Montag, who's sitting at the center kind of wrestling with all this. We talked about how all of these characters and ideas sort of come from Bradbury's earlier experiences, um, his earlier drafts of this story become a novel, how Bradbury himself was upset and traumatized by an encounter with a policeman who questioned him just for walking around, an idea that we see echoed back here in the second half of the novel, um, as well as Bradbury's own experience writing and defending this work among many of his others, his disdain for criticism and sort of a pernicious criticism specifically that attacks his work and demands that it be changed, um, and how that connects to the ideas of, you know, minorities with their own opinions and their navels to be kept clean, as Captain Beatty puts it. Um, we discussed, in short, a lot of the sort of engineering behind this novel. Um, we discussed the world that it presents. We discussed the past, in short. Here in the second half, I want to focus on the future. Um, the message that Bradbury has for us, the sort of danger that this world and this idea, these ideologies that Bradbury is representing here, the dangers that they present to us, like more than just the sort of emptiness that, that we've seen from characters like Mildred. Um, but also, we're going to talk about solutions. How do we fix this? How do we remake the world now that it is in this dangerous and tenuous state? Um, and I should emphasize right here on the outset, this is going to get grim. Like, it was grim to start with. I mean, a book that basically starts with, you know, Montag watching his wife get her stomach pumped because she attempted suicide for reasons that she is not willing to talk about or even admit when confronted about it. You know, th that's just where we kick off this novel, and already we're going to see things get a lot darker by the end. Um, so I want to start by talking about Faber. Um, Faber is literally the first thing that we encounter, the first thing we meet in the second half, you know, stopping where we did at, at the, the Denim's Dentifrice scene where Montag is desperately trying to read on the subway and having his, his thoughts drowned out by the inane advertising. Um, literally the next scene is his encounter with Faber. Um, so once again we have a new character to sort of work into our formula here to sort of figure out his relationships to the other characters and his symbolic importance to this novel. Um, and Faber is kind of our mentor figure. Like, it's hard to put him in that place because he literally doesn't show up until halfway through the novel. He's only going to actually physically be in contact with Montag for a whole two scenes, and then he's going to disappear. Um, 
But this is very much the role that he plays. He is a retired college professor who used to teach drama. Um, he apparently had this class on drama from, what was it, like the Greek ancients to O'Neill. Um, and nobody showed up to his class. Like, the semester rolled around and he had literally one student sign up for it. And at this point, he was basically done. Um, and I want to emphasize that. Again, there's no violence to the transition here. This was something that was willfully taken. This is why I find this vision of the future so both compelling and realistic, as well as dangerous and pernicious. Um, people just quit signing up for the class. They're not interested in taking something other than pure science or mathematics or engineering or something with clear practical consequences. Something that Bradbury echoes a couple of times here. Um, Faber is one of the old guard. He is a literature professor. He is a humanities professor. He is one of those people whose job it was, once upon a time, to think and to teach others to think as well. And as everyone is gradually getting rid of this thinking as part of one's life, realizing that these are the melancholy hours that one spends thinking, they get rid of the professors too. Not by government interference, not with large protests shutting down the school, but through sheer unadulterated apathy gradually overtaking all of these people's attitudes. Um, the day comes where Faber realizes that he is obsolete. And when, in fact, the government does start burning books, Faber does not protest. And this is significant to notice here. Faber, as much as he is our mentor figure, is not a hero. He is a coward, and he characterizes himself as a coward multiple times. Um, he willingly let this happen, in part because he knows full well that there's nothing to be gained by protesting against it. Um, he knows that the tide of public opinion has turned against him, and that there is no point in trying to outshout the loudest voices out there, because shouting itself is kind of a part of the apparatus of his opponents here. And this I find troubling. And in fact, this theme is going to come up pretty frequently here in the back half of the novel. Um, when Montag actually makes it out of the city and escapes down the river and, and is spending time with the book people, Granger makes a similar statement here, namely that they have to start by recognizing that they are not important, that they are not going to magically convert people to their opinions, and that in all likelihood people are no, not going to be any more interested in listening to them now that the world has ended than they were back when it was in full swing. Um, Faber, Granger, all of these people belong to the society of intellectuals who, at this point in history, have realized how outmoded they have become. And they also realize that nobody is going to be welcoming them with open arms. Bradbury is extremely realistic here. Um, Bradbury is perhaps a little pessimistic, but at the same time, at no point does Bradbury just glorify without any qualification or caveat the nature of being literate. Um, Faber is a coward. Granger is, to some degree, extremely cautious in the same way. Both recognize that despite how smart they are, nobody wants to hear them. Um, and this I find both troubling and also kind of very much in line with my own experience. Um, I have had something like a thousand students walk into my classrooms over the last several years, and 
the vast majority of them do not have any interest in what I have to offer to them besides me being able to give them a grade. Every now and again I can get their attention, every now and again I can get them to sort of think through the ramifications of their actions both as a student in my class or because of the content that I'm teaching, but on an average day when I am sitting there teaching in class and I look around the room in the middle of a lecture on Kant or in the middle of a discussion about you know, any number of great important philosophers, I can readily see a good half dozen people, if not more, usually more, who are just futzing about on their computers, you know, paying attention to something completely irrelevant. And to some degree, I'm okay with that. I know that I can't fight that. I have had conversations with department chairs where they have told me, you know, you've got to do a group activity or you've got to engage them somehow. But if you are already talking about engagement, then you have already lost the fight. Um, if your entire goal is to just get their attention, there are a lot of really successful ways to do that that will not add one iota to their intelligence or bring them any closer to understanding or caring about what you are trying to teach. Um, they are interested in it, in it purely for the credit for being interested in it. In the same way that Beatty talks about people reading the digest, digest, digests of Hamlet, so you can keep up with your neighbors and show off your erudition in you know pub, in public parties. Like this is what Faber knows, um, and on some deep level, I know this as well. I would rather count myself with the likes of Faber and Granger. I would love to perceive myself and them as the heroes of this novel, just keeping the fires burning, the, the knowledge of, you know, all of these great writers and great thinkers alive. But importantly, that's not the message here. These people are not heroes. And in fact, they emphasize we are just the dust jackets for these books, and we are not even keeping them alive out of some innate sense of worth, but rather in the hope that they will one day help everyone. Faber emphasizes this too. Like, Montag walks into the room and says, you know, I knew that, you know, the world was wrong, and I didn't know why, and I figured the only thing that I know for sure is gone is the books, so maybe the books are helpful. And Faber's response is no. It's not the books. It's what's in the books. It's the knowledge that those books contain. It's the way that the books present their information. That's what's important. And that, too, I want to sort of highlight here. Um, I remember when I was in grade school and you would just, like, walk around in you know, the 90s, and there would be these posters on the walls and on the library door, and they would just say, read, like capital R-E-A-D, read, and they'd have some famous celebrity or something with a stack of books in front of them, and that was it. Like, that was the entire poster. Like, there are hundreds of these damn things all over the old 90s school system. I don't know if they still exist. I assume that we've given up on that particular campaign at this point. Maybe we haven't. Who's to say? Um... Presumably the kids who are actually in grade school and high school now. So, you know, feel free to let me know if you are, in fact, recently out of high school or still there and are seeing the read posters everywhere. Like, feel free to let me know. But what I want to emphasize is I, as much as I have always loved books, like, you will never find another person who is as deeply in love with reading as, as me. I have never gone so far as to just fetishize them in this way. Um, Bradbury taught me better than that. The books are not what's important. 
Um, I am just as happy opening, you know, an actual physical hardcover edition of the Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court as I am reading it as an ebook on my Kindle or online or wherever. Um, in some cases, I definitely prefer the physical edition. Like, I will count myself with a number who enjoys the smell of a book or likes the tactile feel of it in my hands. Although I've met books that, you know, are actually kind of repellent, either because their covers are badly designed or because the pages are too thin and whatever. Um, but at the same time, I don't... I recognize the usefulness of non-physical editions, of digital editions. I recognize their limitations. I know that if, in fact, we do end up in some catastrophic post-apocalyptic world that, like the one that Bradbury describes here in Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451, all of those digital books are going to be less than useless in the world that springs up around that world. Um, but that's neither here nor there. The key is the books are just communicating something. Um, the books are just a vessel. They are just a tool. Um, and they are as useful and as unuseful as any other tool in this situation. Remember, Beatty specifically pointed out that, like, in the development of the society that we see coming to be, you know, there comes a point where the magazines are just vanilla tapioca and the books are dishwater. And on the one hand, Beatty is saying, you know, the damned snobbish critics say this, and we are not supposed to take the critics' perspective seriously. But on the other hand, what this is saying is, while we do have books in the physical edition of the books, they are trash. They are not useful. They are not staving away the darkness that is ultimately coming upon this society. And I want to stress that today... There are plenty of books out there that are purely for entertainment that are just as much the, you know, empty, meaningless drivel that is being spilled out of the family parlor screens in Montag's uh, dystopian universe. Um, the, the fact that you are reading is not itself praiseworthy. The fact that you are doing books instead of movies or books instead of PDFs or books instead of TikTok is not itself praiseworthy. What is praiseworthy is what the books contain. Are you, in fact, engaging with that material? Are you, in fact, engaged in a question and answer? Are you thinking through this and not just accepting what is being fed back to you? To some degree, all those vanilla tapioca magazines and dishwater books that Beatty is talking about are basically just functioning as mirrors. They are just showing us what we already want to see. They're confirming our opinions instead of challenging them. And that's why they're useless. That's why they're meaningless. That's why the critics condemn them. And that's why ultimately people quit caring about them to the point that they just let them burn. What Faber describes instead, he's actually really systematic about here. And it's clear that Bradbury has a program for what it is that is missing from this world. More than just books. Again, the books are a symptom not the actual meat under underlying it. We got rid of the books because they were so frequently filled with the kind of things that Faber describes here, and at the very least there were enough of them that did have this stuff once upon a time that now Faber is, you know, or Faber recognizes that that's what presented the danger. But let's talk about the three things that Faber identifies here. Number one, do you know why books such as this are so important? Because they have quality. And what does the word quality mean? To me, it means texture. This book has pores. 
It has features. This book can go under the microscope. You'd find life under the glass, streaming past in infinite profusion. The more pores, the more truthfully recorded details of life per square inch you can get on a sheet of paper, the more, quote, literary you are. That's my definition anyway. Telling detail. Fresh detail. The good writers touch life often. The mediocre ones run a quick hand over her. The bad ones rape her and leave her for the flies. Now, this is honestly one of the most memorable passages in the whole book for me. Like that ending especially, the good writers touch life often while bad writers rape her and leave her for the flies. Like that's one of those things that's just stuck in my head so deeply and I kind of bring it to every critical endeavor I, I take part in. Um, and in fact, I was honestly surprised to find it here and I think I'm always surprised to find it here because I think it actually belongs in John Gardner's On Moral Fiction or something. What Bradbury is saying here is kind of difficult to parse because he is using just metaphor after metaphor after metaphor rather than actually getting at what in fact he's talking about. But that, I think, is the point here. It isn't something that is easily talked about. When, like, let's look at the metaphors that he applies here. Um, first, they have quality. Now, when we talk about quality, we usually think of, like, something impressive about the work, something that makes it better than other works, something with quality as opposed to without quality is the same difference as the good movie versus the bad movie, or the good book versus the bad book. We say that a book has quality when it is better than a book that does not have quality. But at the same time, that's not exactly how it's being used here. That's not the description that, that Faber ultimately points to. When saying that something has quality is, for a philosopher like me, incredibly frustrating. Qualities are something everything has. This is comparable to Aristotle's sense of accidents, or features, or faculties. A quality is just a characteristic. A book being good is a quality of the book, and a book being bad is a quality of the book. Um, so on the one hand, I see what Bradbury is doing with this. I see that we are talking about, like, some abstract, difficult-to-pin-down advantage um, of being literary, but it's not terribly well decided here. The word isn't terribly precise. So we use another metaphor. To me, it means texture. This book has pores. It has features. So we have texture, pores, features. Features, I just feel like throwing out. Like, this is totally unhelpful. It, this is the same as saying that it has qualities. It's like, okay, so yes, there are things that you can say about the book. There are things that describe it. But the idea that it has texture, pores, that's something more meaningful to me. That means that there's something that goes against the grain of our touch. This idea of pores or texture at least suggests that it is rough. It doesn't necessarily just make sense or is totally smooth, is totally frictionless when we approach it. That's what I think Bradbury is getting at here, and this is something that I can actually, like, get behind. On the one hand, we associate pores with, you know, skin. Skin is porous. It is kind of rough to the touch. Like, we always talk about smooth skin and covering up the pores, and I think, honestly, that image is really useful here. There is something plastic about that sense of beauty, a porous-less beauty. 
Um, whereas the beauty that Bradbury is talking about is porous. It is textured. It feels rougher than a skin cream can promise. What we are hoping to achieve by applying a skin cream, removing the pores, is to make ourselves seem less human. To make our seem, ourselves seem plastic, artificial, robotic even. We are seeking a standard of beauty that glosses over all distinctions, that renders us all totally indistinguishable from one another. And that itself is kind of horrifying when you read into this particular dimension of the metaphor, but that's kind of exactly what Bradbury's getting at here. The same thing is happening in this world. Everybody has become like everybody else. Nobody has some idea that is original or separate from the rest of the crowd, and if they do, then it is immediately quashed down or ignored or not aired for anyone to see. Again, controlling people in this society means having them all think the same things and behave the same ways, and you do that by rendering their intellectual capacities down to this lowest common denominator that all of them share. They are not porous. They are not individuals. They are just a sheer plastic mass. They are all striving after the same exact ideal. These books, by contrast, this quality that Faber is describing is porous. It raises questions. It causes friction. If you think of a porous-less work of art, I think of something like the Marvel movies. And don't get me wrong, I love me some of my Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, but a lot of them are designed to not ask questions, to just reinforce our own pre-existing beliefs, to sort of exist on this metatextual level where it does not challenge. And there are definitely exceptions to the rule, by all means. Like, I'm not trying to, like, gloss over all of them here. Um, but these are movies very much factory-made to appeal to the greatest number of people possible and to not, in fact, challenge along the way. Take, for example, in case we want to get specific, um, Captain America's The Civil War movie. Like, on the one hand, and on the surface, this looks like a serious movie about serious things. We have, you know, the superheroes have done a bad thing and now everyone is mad at them and they have to make this decision whether to sign this accord and sign their freedom over to this like overarching government organization or alternatively to refuse to sign these accords and effectively become outlaws but still following whatever convictions they personally have to believe. Finally, all of this boils over and we get this conflict between Iron Man and Captain America. They go head to head and then it turns out that Winter Soldier actually killed Iron Man's dad. So it becomes this whole conflict in its own right. But notice what that arc suggests. It suggests that the original plot, the idea, the big political questions of is it right to maintain one's independence and to uh, be totally separate from the government organizations and oversights that, you know, are imposed upon them, or is it better to accept those oversights and operate only at the behest of a democratic or, you know, government environment? That question very much gets ignored in the greater context of this movie. It's not the central problem. The central problem is Iron Man and Captain America are having a fight, and it makes everybody very sad. This is unchallenging. 
this opens up the possibility of just the characters being at stake here and not some big political agenda. You can fall in line on Iron Man's side, and you can fall in line on Captain America's side, and you can feel vindicated by this movie because this movie does not reward you either way. The ideas are unimportant. The characters are. And on some level, there's something really admirable about this. Like, I think that it's a carefully crafted work here. I think it achieves its goals admirably. But its goal is very much to not rile feathers here. To not get people worked up. What Faber is talking about, the porousness, the texture, is the opposite of that. Where many of our big crowd-pleasing blockbuster movies are designed to keep everybody happy and let everybody walk out of the theater feeling good, what Faber is describing are works that make everybody leave feeling uncomfortable. Stuff that challenges all of us. Even if it does vindicate our position, it does not do it so completely that we feel justified when we walk out of this. We're not talking about an Ayn Rand novel here where it's all ideology but all skewed ideology to one perspective. We're talking about something much more uncomfortable. Something much more challenging. We're talking about the big open-ended questions of a platonic dialogue. Or we're talking about the big uncomfortable sequences of people disagreeing in something like an O'Neill play. Or something like George Bernard Shaw. Or something like any good work by David at Foster Wallace. We walk away feeling kind of gross. Left without any clear decision or without any clear way to move forward. We left... We're left wondering about our own decisions, questioning ourselves, questioning the work, trying to come to some understanding with it, and to some degree being frustrated by this. I suspect that that's what Faber is getting at here. And again, that's what he goes on to emphasize. This book can go under the microscope. You'd find life under the glass, streaming past in infinite profusion. The more pores, the more truthfully recorded details of life per square inch you can get on a sheet of paper, the more literary you are. That's my definition anyway. Telling detail, fresh detail. Now here, I think we're kind of going in a slightly different direction. If I'm approaching the subject of pores as though it is, you know, intellectual ambiguity or question, Bradbury seems to be going more in the direction of true-to-lifeness. Um, and this, again, is something that I struggle with. Like, essentially, and let's get down to brass tacks here. What we are talking about, what Faber is confronting, and what we are kind of forced to deal with when Bradbury asks these questions about, okay, so what is it the books have that are so important to this society? The answer is basically the same thing as what is the canon? What is literary? What is literary quality in a work of literature? And I can tell you from experience, that's a real hard question to answer. For the last two years, I've been trying to write that goddamn post about decolonizing my library and trying to figure out how exactly I'm going to deal with Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And the answer that I keep coming up with is I have to come up with some kind of philosophy encompassing what makes the canonical works of literature canonical works of literature. And on the one hand, the easy way out here is to say everybody agrees. Like, everybody's read Shakespeare and knows that Shakespeare is important, and to just stop the conversation there. But the philosopher in me is not going to settle for that. The philosopher wants to say, why? 
there can't be just, you know, everybody agrees that it's important, therefore it's important, or, you know, the old judge's question or answer to the question about what is pornography, I know it when I see it. Um, we have to deal here with something, some quality of the work itself, something that makes the work that work. And that's a really hard thing to pin down because, again, great works of literature are so diverse in their character. Some of them are big, polemical, satirical, intellectual works of ideological, you know, disagreement like Gulliver's Travels. And some of them are very true-to-life accounts of the time that they are written in, like Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice or Emma. Um, and we have everything in between. We have grand philosophical novels that sort of explore multiple perspectives, like Dostoevsky kicking these ideas around in the Brothers Karamazov. We have, you know, sort of hyper-real, like, ex or explanations of reality, sort of like they're realistic in, in, in some sense, but also just too realistic in others, something like Goethe's Sorrows of Young Werther, or Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy, or Tom Jones, and that's never minding the sort of artistic appeal of many of these works, the poeticness of some of these great works of literature, be it the actual poetry of someone like Whitman, or Frost, or Yeats, or Tennyson, or alternatively, like, poetic prose, prose that is just gorgeous to read, um, like you can find in Thomas Hardy or Virginia Woolf or James Joyce. Um, there are so many different artistic priorities here. And I think Bradbury is being reductive, but he's only got a paragraph. Faber's got to tell Montaigne what makes books important pretty quick because the book's got to keep moving because he's got his own agenda. And as much as I think this work is a classic, it is a classic divorced from many of the other classics we've talked about here. So the short answer we get is quality, porousness, being true to life, telling fresh detail. The more details of life per square inch you can get on a piece of paper, the more literary you are, we are told. So I think we are getting at more of that truth to life than the ideological novel in the sense of like a Dostoevsky or something. And I don't necessarily think we're wrong. Like I think there's a certain amount of uh, writers that definitely fall into that category. This is the sort of thing I associate with, again, Jane Austen or John Steinbeck or, you know, Henry James, to some degree. Um, realistic, actually incisive and observant takes on human life and human nature. But it's also really hard to read it that way because that's not what Bradbury is doing. Like, Bradbury is very much in a different space here. Something located between the ideological novel of Dostoevsky and the sort of, like, prose poem of, you know, someone like Virginia Woolf. We're dealing with way hyper-real characters, a very stylized environment, everyone standing for some big philosophical position, but also just these grand passages of description and detail that are just high-flying metaphors and brilliant, like, absolutely stunning language that is itself very unrealistic, very stylized. So I think what Bradbury is talking about here is more complicated than either the purely true-to-life novel or the purely textured and complicated work, we're dealing with something that is itself indescribable. And that business of the infinite profusion of life, that's what Bradbury values. That's, I think, the key detail in this list of metaphors that he talks about. 
the infinite profusion of life is uncharacterizable. It is something that can only be captured in snapshot, like taking a picture of a moving train. You get some of it. You can even get a lot of it if you can pack it in real tight. But it doesn't change the fact that you're never going to see the whole thing. You're never going to get all sides of the moving train at once. What Bradbury is doing in this novel is trying to capture as much as possible of this particular view and this particular train car as he can get. And I think he does an admirable job there. But that's the key. Life doesn't look streamlined. It isn't plastic or artificial. It isn't conformist or robotic. To capture life, you have to see all of the myriad contradictions at once, and somehow capture all of them, or at least as many as you can, at once. Something that streamlines the process, like an Ayn Rand ideological novel, is going to get only one side of the train, and thus effectively lie to you. Whereas someone like Shakespeare, or for that matter like Bradbury, who is willing to entertain contradictory opinions, who is willing to leave you unsettled because there isn't some philosophical answer to the question that the book raises, that's richness. And that's something that Bradbury is doing pretty well here in Fahrenheit 451. Like, he's no Shakespeare. You know, Shakespeare can spin us quite the yarn about, like, a whole bunch of people having a fun time during Twelfth Night and then just ruin it with one guy who's like, yeah, you tortured me for three hours, and I'd like to point that out, that all of you kind of suck. And we're forced to admit both sides of this perspective. Like, he, Bradbury can't quite get that visceral here. But Bradbury is getting at the richness of this problem of happiness throughout this novel. On the one hand, Bradbury is presenting Beatty as a really compelling character. Beatty's vision of happiness and reality is powerful, is in fact compelling. Like, Beatty is probably one of my all-time favorite villains in the history of literature because he is so damn persuasive. Because he only, like, two inches to the left of Beatty is the truth. And I want to be on that truth spot, recognizing that Beatty is in fact trying to divert my attention from it, but in the process I have to note that Beatty isn't wrong. Everyone does disagree. But that's the key. Keep in mind that, like, just a little while later, we're going to see the opposite speech here. Like, here's Faber presenting his philosophy of literature and why it's important and why we need it, and just... As soon as Montag gets back to the firehouse, Beattie is going to present us with the counter-argument. And his counter-argument is contradiction. It is, here are all of these writers who disagree with each other and disagree with themselves. Like, he quotes Pope three times, and each time Pope is saying something radically different from the time before within the confines of the same essay. Like, Beattie even points this out. But that's what Bradbury's getting at. Where Beatty says, here are all of the contradictions, here is why you shouldn't take writers seriously because they contradict each other all the time, Bradbury is saying that's exactly why you need to take writers seriously, because they contradict themselves all the time. Because they are the only people brave enough to look like fools, brave enough to say one thing and its opposite at the same exact time. The richest writers, the textured ones, the ones with the pores, are the ones who are willing to stare themselves in the face and say, nope, I'm wrong. And I'm also right. And I'm also wrong. And all of these things are true. Let me show you how. 
if we walk away from a work of literature feeling comfortable or satisfied or at peace with the world or disinclined to ask any further questions, then that's not literature, is what Bradbury is suggesting. Or at the very least, it has failed in some dimension of its being literature. And I think Bradbury doesn't have a problem with pure entertainment. Like, we're going to see Bradbury write pure entertainment in his own time, for sure. Um, the key is you can't let that pure entertainment take over the actual literary quality, the contradictoriness, the view of life that sees it as being illogical and in need of being questioned, debated, and argued. Bradbury is not saying there is a solution here. Bradbury is saying there is a debate here. And if you are not seeing both sides of the debate, if you are not recognizing the merits of all of the contradictions to your own position, then you're doing it wrong. There's more depth, more complication, more life in all of its sprawling, messy inconsistency wandering over the page of a work of literature than there ever was on those TV screens that Mildred was watching. Remember, Mildred sees conflict for the sake of conflict. The one scene we get, like, everybody's arguing with each other, and then there's this loud sound and this big musical cue, and then it's all resolved. There was never a position to be had. There was never a position to put against it. All that you needed was the feeling of conflict itself. Again, the way that Cap or Captain America Civil War turns an intellectual discussion into a pure character of character-driven conflict that we in the audience are invested in because of our investment in the characters, but are not forced to confront ourselves with because we separate ourselves enough from the characters to see that their problems aren't ours. We can say to ourselves at the end of the movie, Iron Man was wrong to go so far and feel comfortable without having to ask the question, was Iron Man wrong also in his devotion to the state? That is a question we're not inclined to ask. And the entire Sokovia Accords question is swept off stage, never to be raised again. This is what Bradbury is afraid of. And the counter-argument that he places here is pretty potent if you can read through the fuzziness. Because again, somehow, in one paragraph, Bradbury is trying to express something that it's taken me like 20 minutes to talk about, if not more. Which is why we get to that last set of lines. The good writers touch life often. They recognize salient details of our existence and how they fit together and how they don't fit together, oftentimes. The mediocre ones run a quick hand over her. They get what they want out of her. They use life to their own purposes. And the bad ones go a step further. They rape her and leave her for the flies. It's a vicious image, perhaps a little too vicious in 2022, but a powerful one. Life is only a tool for those writers, is only used in order to get what they want, usually money or fame or a sense of prestige. They don't care about what is real. They don't care about what is true. They don't care about the infinite profusion of life itself, the complexity and contradictoriness. Instead, they take what they want and leave the rest. And this could definitely be used to describe the likes of an Anne Rand who is taking only from life insofar as she, you know, wants to organize a philosophical argument to, to defend her own position. Or this can be used to describe a Marvel movie, i.e. only talk about life when it is something that is comfortable and will make us lots of money. 
Or you can talk about this in the terms of something even more complicated and more highly revered. You could definitely apply this formula to something like, say, Plato's Republic and come up with some pretty surprising results. You could definitely criticize Plato on these very same grounds. But I think what Bradbury is getting at here is that where Anne Rand simplifies and where the Marvel movies simplify, Plato gives us more complexity. And that is the key. That's what makes literature literature. That's what makes the canon canon. And that's why great books don't stop being great. So if we've successfully solved the problem of canon better than I have in my essay so far, maybe one of these days I'll be able to get back around to that, but not looking good anytime soon, let's talk about the second point here. If the first point is quality, literature, self-contradictoriness, appreciating life in all of its infinite profusion, then the second thing Faber brings up is leisure. And this one we've already talked about, because Beatty also brought this up. When Beatty talked about how we replace our buttons with the zippers and therefore save us that much time, because the time of dressing is a reflecting and thus a melancholy hour, we talked about that whole point there, so I don't need to reiterate it here. What Faber is saying is we need time to think. And the society that has been designed around these characters is one that is going well out of its way to prevent that thinking from taking place. Again, that's something that I see in our own society, our own like world today. And again, that's something that we talked about extensively, so I don't feel... Or I don't feel it's necessary to reiterate here. In the same way that Denim's Dentifrice manages to drown out all of Montag's efforts to read, so does the constant barrage of streaming services and advertising and internet and TikTok and, and movies and TV and so on give us the opportunity to quash any free hour, any quiet ten minutes that we have. Like, people aren't even sitting on the goddamn toilet without their phones watching TikTok videos and distracting themselves from the melancholy hour um, that would be described here. Even work is something that we tend to avoid. Any moment that is spent waiting or, like, an anticipating, any time we are left with our own thoughts, we pick up the phone, we plug in our headphones, we try and escape it as much as we can. That can't be if... Faber is right, and if Bradbury is right here. But the next thing I want to talk about is the third one. So, as Faber says, only if the third necessary thing could be given us. Number one, as I said, quality of information. Number two, leisure to digest it. And number three, the right to carry out actions based on what we learn from the interaction of the first two. And I hardly think a very old man and a fireman turned sour could do much this late in the game. Faber acknowledges that at the end of the day, this is about a lack of freedom. Yes, the unwillingness to deal with the quality of information and the lack of time spent meditating are key factors in this sort of popular overthrow of intellectualism and this eventual destruction of books in this society. Like, again, this starts with the people. Bradbury emphasizes this over and over again. They are not, they don't want to read. They don't want to have to rethink their views. They don't want to be engaged with books of this kind of quality. So first, they dumb everything down. We turn the magazines into vanilla tapioca and the books into dishwasher, dishwater. Second, we absolutely fill up our lives with nonsense. Sports, we fill it up with 
television. We fill it up with inane conversations. We just make sure that every minute of every hour is already planned out for us, already filled with some noise or sound or music or mindless activities so as to be distracted from our own deep thoughts and horrors. But at the end of the day, it does also get enforced. There are advantages to the state, to those people in power, in having the culture behave like this, in having people respond in these predictable ways, having them cut off from the diversity of information that Faber has just finished talking about. And that's where it turns truly sinister. As much as Montag and Faber want to change the world, as much as they want to reintroduce books and to reintroduce thinking and to give people more time to sort of be alone with their thoughts, they can't. Because at this point, it's gone too far. Now there are government organizations and powers in place to prevent these things from happening. When, in fact, people weren't reading books, Faber was still getting his occasional student, and he was left alone with his library. But when the fireman organization is created, that's a new problem. That is the last, that is the key turning in the lock of the trap. That is where we go from being in a voluntarily chosen dystopian situation to one that is enforced. And Bradbury emphasizes, at this point, it's too far gone. Montag and Faber alone can do nothing. Only a widespread movement could change the nature of the culture, and importantly, it's not there. They don't want it. That's not how people behave. And this is one thing that I kind of find really distressing and powerful about this. Um, again, if you are going to change the way a culture works, one of two things is going to happen. Either it's going to fall apart of its own accord, or you're going to need an absolutely huge movement of people to change it. And what makes Bradbury's dystopia so insidious, so dangerous, so compelling, is the fact that it is a happy utopia, a place, or a happy dystopia, a place where people are, generally speaking, unable to diagnose the evil that they are suffering from. Mildred wants more television, not less. And even though she is unhappy, she associates that unhappiness with Montag reading his damn books, getting into her head about his dark thoughts, and refusing to let her just enjoy the life she wants. Montag is interfering with the television world that Mildred wants to be a part of. And Montag and Faber and Granger and all the book people together can't snap people out of that. Once the door of the trap is closed and locked, the only way you can break it open is to have everybody on the inside of the trap fighting against it. But that's not the world that Bradbury describes for us here. Everybody on the inside of the trap is holding the door while Montag beats at the bars. They want to stay in the trap. The trap is happy. The trap is comfortable. They are not happy in it, but they associate the problem with Montag beating on the bars and not the people who have locked the door against them. They see the problem as being all of those dread, melancholy moments that Beatty was describing, which is why Beatty's vision is so potent. He is the happiness machine. He is the master of making everything continue to go smoothly. 
And as long as it's going smoothly, people are content. Not happy, but content. They continue to take their sleeping pills every time that the facade is taken down, every time the illusion flickers, but it doesn't change the fact that the people keep returning to the illusion. They would rather have the illusion than to deal with the reality that is underlying it. Faber and Montag and Granger are not revolutionaries. They can't be. You can't be a revolutionary fighting against everyone. Like, yeah, you can fight against the state, but only if there are a whole bunch of unhappy people who are fighting beside you. These people are not unhappy. They are more than happy to let the state keep governing their lives. They are more than satisfied with the way that their lives are going. You cannot fight both the state and the people. And that's what Faber and Montag and Granger are forced to confront and admit. That's why Granger says, we are not important that we have to let them make this decision for themselves, we can't make it for them. They have to recognize that the consequences of their actions are this dire. And this is why Bradbury emphasizes the consequences in the back half of this novel. Like, yeah, Montag does in fact bust loose from this society. Beatty goes to his house, forces Montag to burn his own things, and in that scene, it's noteworthy that Montag does burn the books. That is his first action. But he also, importantly, burns the beds where he and Mildred had never spent a happy life, a happy night together. Like, he seems to think that there is an emptiness. They burn with more passion than they had ever experienced before. And he goes into the TV room and he burns each of the television sets. And Bradbury emphasizes the vacuum, the emptiness, the vacuousness of those television tubes bursting. That's what Montag seeks to destroy. Beatty tries to call his attention back to the books. The books, Montag, he says. But Montag is not interested in burning the books. He wants to burn the vacuousness of his life, the emptiness of it. That's what troubles him. That's what is causing him to be miserable. That's what he is raging against. So when Beatty, in fact, like, does draw his attention and says, you're under arrest, Montag's rage is still burning. Like, but it is burning not against the books that Beatty insists that he destroy, it is burning against the life that he sort of did not bother to live. All of the tools by which he could afford not to live his life, by which his life was robbed from him by Mildred, by the television set, by this sort of happy, swinging merry-go-round of this empty, meaningless life. Now, this spurs Montag to a surprisingly violent action. He murders Beatty. He sets him on fire. And it is framed as murder here. Bradbury doesn't qualify this. Like, as much as this kind of comes off as this triumphant moment of, you know, Montag finally breaking loose from Beatty's tyrannical control and asserting his own independent ideas, he's, he describes it, he sees it himself as murder. That's, you know, something worth mentioning here. Like, this is not a justified act. This is not the revolutionary taking on the unjust state. This is... One man murdering another man. And, like, the way that he, uh, Bradbury describes it here, um, he twitched the safety catch on the flamethrower as Beatty is standing in front of him. Beatty glanced instantly at Montag's fingers and his eyes widened the faintest bit. 
Montag saw the surprise there and himself glanced to his hands to see what new thing they had done. Thinking back later, he could never decide whether the hands or Beatty's reaction to the hands gave him the final push toward murder. The last rolling thunder of the avalanche stoned down around about his ears, not touching him. There's a passiveness here. It's not Montag, but his hands that are committing the action. Like, I'm reminded of Camus and the Stranger saying that Merceau, like, doesn't pull the trigger. Instead, the trigger gave. Like, totally passive. Um, in some sense, Montag, too, has this passive relationship to his own hands. He watches them steal the book as it flies down from the rafters when the old woman burns herself. And here, the hands seem to be the one doing the murder, not him. But Bradbury doesn't quail on that word choice. It is murder. It is unjust killing, in some sense. And what Montag does here is not framed as heroic. He feels guilt over it. The one place where we're given some kind of absolution is when Montag is hiding in the bushes as the other salamanders are starting to gear up, and he realizes that Beatty wanted to die. And this is one of those really complicated moments in the novel. Because on the one hand, again, Montag is guilty here. No one is denying Montag's guilt. This is the sort of self-contradictory, you know, infinite profusion of life thing that Bradbury was talking about earlier. Montag is not an innocent here. He is not a victim of this society. He is himself both complicit in the social hierarchy that constructs it. He was a fireman once upon a time. But also, his only reaction to it is the reaction of a caged animal. He strikes back senselessly. He murders out of pure anger, out of pure uncontrollable rage. And yes, to some degree it's justified, it's totally understandable, but it remains murder. Beatty was a human being. He was even an intelligent human being. Like, Faber even questions at one point, what if Beatty's actually on our side? before realizing, no, he's far more insidious than that, when Beatty sort of presents his, you know, self-characterized dream debate to Montag. But even here, Montag realizes it's not that straightforward either. Beatty wanted to die. Beatty, once upon a time, was a scholarly, erudite intellectual. He appreciated the richness of these works, or he wouldn't be able to quote them as easily as he does. He wouldn't understand with that keen intensity how warped this world actually is. And as much as we've seen Beatty at every stage inviting Montag back to the happiness machine, threatening Montag, sending the mechanical hound after him, you get the sense in each of Beatty's speeches that he is playing a game not against Montag, but against himself. That on the one hand, he is showing us this horrifying, warped, dystopian world. He is calling it a warped, dystopian world, at the same time as he insults the world that came before. The damned snobbish critics called the books dishwater, Beatty says. And on the one hand, he is saying that the critics were right, that they were, in fact, dishwater. But on the other hand, some part of him rebels against that. The critics were snobs. They were damn stops. Beatty shares Bradbury's righteous indignation against criticism, his righteous indignation against the minorities, even as 
he upholds what the minorities, what the critics, what all of these people who love sport and music and don't want to deal with their you know problems in the morning feel like. Beatty and Bradbury see both sides, which is why Beatty is probably the most compelling character in this entire novel, because he has that contradiction written into his soul, where Montag is just this kind of fish-out-of-water protagonist trying to sort out his world and failing, where Mildred has been reduced by her circumstances into a one-dimensional character whose second dimension is so deeply buried in herself that she can't even recognize it, and where Faber is just a coward, just a scholar, trying to hide himself from the rest of the world, Beatty has that depth. Beatty is both villain and hero. He is the monster who he had to become, but also the monster he chose to become. Beatty in another world could have been a revolutionary, could have been the one that Faber refused to become. Beatty could very well have been that man standing on the pyre saying, let's light a candle, Master Ridley, that this that all London will remember. Beatty envisions himself that way, wants to be that person. And when Montag sets him on fire, Montag's realization here gets to the core of Beatty's personhood. He wanted to die. He would rather have died. He would rather have gone out a hero those years ago than continue to serve this machinery. But at the same time, Beatty gets this kind of perverse joy from propping up this machinery. He is okay playing the villain. Happy, in fact, to play the villain. It's a good role to play here. It's the last powerful role that Beatty can really have. Just as Faber is sitting at home playing the stock market and tinkering with machinery, Beatty has found his place in this world. As a fire chief, he can still be smarter than everyone else around him. He can still be superior and intellectual. He can still quote Alexander Pope, and he can still talk about Gulliver's travels, and he can still, you know, decry the lies of the Bible. Things that likely he would have done back in his old life. But at the same time, there's no one to play against. There's no hero for him to be the villain to. All he can do is raise up these half-baked firemen who do in fact come into contact with these books, who do in fact question once in a while, as he says, and see if he can prod them into becoming something more. In a sense, Beatty is waiting for Montag. Beatty is hoping that Montag will eventually show up. Montag fulfills the promise that Beatty is hoping for. Or so it would seem. It's hard to say. Beatty doesn't give us enough detail to really come to these conclusions. But if we're to trust Montag in his brief moment of insight that Beatty wanted to die, these are the questions we're left asking. Why? Who was this man that Montag murdered? That willingly was murdered? That goaded him with the fire, with the flamethrower sitting in front of him? That's the horror of Beatty's situation. And that's why he wants to die. Now, Montag's chase out of the city is not terribly interesting from a kind of thematic view. There are some really interesting things that happen to him. 
Um, like, I am particularly moved every time I read the scene where he tries to cross the street and the, the car attempts to, like, run over him and then swerves at the last minute just because Montag fell over and the driver was concerned that he would flip the car if he continued running over him. Like, that's the one really important thematic nugget, as far as I can tell in, in the sort of back half of the chase scene. It's just all action at that point. There's a lot of rich description, especially when Montag enters the river and feels the, the sort of land creeping up against him, just too big, too powerful, too daunting, too immense, you know, in the same way that now that he has embraced this life of contradictory letters and contradictory writers, he is forced to confront just how massive, how impossibly unimaginably complicated the world has become. Um, but we don't get a whole lot of depiction of the world at this point, of, of the sort of like conflict between complexity and simplicity that we are seeing over and over again. The, the conflict between the sort of rough, porous freedom and the, the horrific, you know, conformist social pressure that we see over and over again here. Um, again, there are only a couple of scenes there. Like, even when Montag meets Faber again, it's just plot movement. The mechanical hound is on his trail after it's being shipped in from another city, and Faber is sitting there at home, like, packing up all of his old dirty clothes so Montag can wear them and throw off the scent. Uh, like, they dis their discussion there is almost entirely plot-oriented. Uh, but the two scenes, again, that, that sort of strike my, strike my fancy in the chase um, are Montag getting almost run over by the beetle and Montag narrowly escaping all the people looking outside of their doors. Um, in the first scene, the key here is that there is a sort of callous, insensitive violence. Like, we've seen hints of this throughout. When Clarice and Montag were talking many moons ago, Clarice mentions that, like, the things that the other teenagers are doing these days scare her. Um, that there are these boys driving in cars at ridiculously high speeds hoping to run over animals. Like, Mildred says, if you run over a rabbit, it'll make you feel better. Um, or alternatively, Clarice mentions that, like, they go to the fun parks and they, like, wreck cars and, and just perform these senseless acts of destruction. We've seen this violent urge, this violent tendency in the entire society. It's another one of those things that dwells in the heart of humans and can't be entirely stamped out. In just the same way that uh, Mildred is sort of disguising her own relationship with mortality, refusing to acknowledge her own willingness, complicity in her own death, like the fact that she wants to commit suicide, in, in the same way that we are not willing to confront that darkness at the heart of ourselves, we also are kind of in a society where the other darkness, the violence inherent of human behavior, is in fact coddled and encouraged. Um, this is a world where people kill each other for fun, and nobody seems to bat an eye about it. Like, as much as we condemn Montag for murdering Captain Beatty, in fact a crime, um, both as far as the society of... Montag's day considers it, and the fact that we consider it murder, we should also recognize that, like, people are getting killed in this society all the time, and it doesn't seem to matter. Clarice just is killed, and nobody bats an eye, nobody sheds a tear, no funeral. Five minutes later, her body is off at the funeral, off at the incinerator, getting burned to nothing. Don't think about it. Um, that's truly horrifying, both in the sense of the murder and the total indifference to it. 
But the other side of this is that the kids are killing each other all the time, and nobody cares. We get that scene where Montag reads the poetry to the other ladies, Mrs. Phelps and company, and he has that moment where he accuses Mrs. Phelps, talking about how her children don't care about her, would as soon kill her as kiss her. Um, and Mrs. Phelps is forced to admit this. Like, she was bragging about it a moment before, how she sends off her kids, you know, nine days out of ten, and has them only at home for three days out of the month, at which point she just sits them in front of the television, and it's like putting a, a, a meal in the microwave. Uh, she has zero relationship to these children. And the only positive that anyone can come up with for why a person would even want children is because it's nice to see that they look like you sometimes. That's all that matters to them, is seeing themselves reflected back at them. The children's own inner lives are completely cut off, completely a matter of indifference. And so the children just die and nobody cares. They kill each other. They run over each other in cars. They drive ridiculously fast, flip their cars over, and die in tragic, horrible accidents. But they're not tragic and they're not horrible because nobody ever sees them and the bodies are whisked off to the incinerator before anybody notices. What we see here is that violence in this one horrifying moment where the beetle is rushing forward towards Montag as he's stumbling across the highway. Montag finally trips and falls, and the only reason they don't run over him at this point is out of self-preservation. They would have been happy to kill this man for no more reason than sport, for no more reason than the challenge. And that was it. The only reason he saved himself was because he changed the situation such that they were now in danger of their own lives. It was more trouble than it was worth. They could have hurt themselves as well. And that's horrifying. Like, as much as this is a society built around, you know, the carnival of happiness that Beatty implies, the underside to this is really disturbing. Like, even more so than we see in something where the happiness is more complete. Like, where, you know, in Brave New World, everybody just takes their Soma and is perfectly happy, and, you know, nobody questions it, nobody challenges it, and ultimately the one person who is dissatisfied, our savage, commits suicide because he has no other choice in the matter. On some level, that dystopia, as disturbing as it is, is more palatable to us. Because at the end of the day, it does provide a pretty seamless exp or seamless vision of uninterrupted, if shallow, contentment slash happiness. But here we see what people are becoming is actually worse. Like, they're not content, they're not happy, they're not good in some sort of abstract and pale sense. We are talking about people who are actively killing each other, and the society just allows it to go on because they care so little for human life. It has been reduced to such triviality. And this, importantly, is echoed in our final scenes in the book. As all of the book people are sitting around the fire, as you know, we have heard over and over that war has been declared, that a million men have been mobilized, we get all of these little fleeting details of the war happening you know, in the background. And then finally, in this last scene of the book, the war happens. In three minutes, the war is over and done. The bomb hits the city, the city flies into the air, juxtaposed with the bombs, and crashes back down to Earth. Everyone dies. Or rather, enough people die that the city is totally wiped out. It's an atomic explosion. The city is nuked, in short.
this is the world that Faber is ultimately willing to reject. Like, we have that conversation between Mont Montag and Faber, where Montag is like, are you sure we're doing the right thing, interrupting this? And Faber's like, if it was just stupid happiness, I'd be okay with it. But there's a war. Lives are about to be lost. Untold destruction is about to occur. And as a consequence, you can't countenance this. As much as we might say, okay, give me the happiness. Take the books, take the, the porousness, take all of those, you know things that bother us, that keep us up in the middle of the night, take away all of the things that make us melancholy and unhappy and just give me my soma, give me my drugs, give me my uninterrupted bliss, give me my ignorance, I will take it gladly. Faber says no, because this isn't what we're talking about. We are not talking about an uninterrupted bliss. We are talking about an illusion, a lie. The war is upon us. Mrs. Phelps's husband is called up, and Mrs. Phelps doesn't regard it in a moment. Just, we've always said not to get carried away, just get remarried. But there are millions being mobilized, millions of people whose lives are on the line here, millions of people who will die in a flash when the city is vaporized by this weapon, and nobody sheds a tear for any of them. If, in fact, this was just happiness, it might be okay. It might be the world that all of those philosophers and essayists and writers were ultimately trying to get put into place. Maybe it would be shallow, but at least it would be shallow and content. But what we're seeing instead is a huge, uncountable, unethical, atrocious loss of life. Death on a scale that even in Bradbury's own day in 1951, he could not possibly have seen before. World War II is a flash in the pan compared to what we're seeing here. And yet it is so much faster, so much more callous, so much so much more indifferent. There was no cause here. At no point do we hear why the war is taking place, what each side believes, why they ultimately are fighting. Instead it's just senseless. Just a whole society refusing to acknowledge its own complicity in making the rest of the world miserable, despite the one line we get that, that might be the case, and then ultimately being utterly destroyed for it. And justly, to some degree. Like, as much, there's that moment where Granger asks Montag, you know, why are you weeping for, for your wife, for Mildred? who is Montag envisions in her hotel room as the bomb hits and destroys her. Like, we were given no cause to think that Mildred survived. None. Zero. Like, for all intents and purposes, for the interpretation of this novel, we have to assume that Mildred is dead. And Montag doesn't feel sad. And Granger, rather than trying to, like, help him through this, instead tells a story about his own grandfather about how his grandfather's life had mattered, that his grandfather had touched other lives, taught people to behave, you know, made the world a better place through creating works of art, through creating things that are beautiful, something that Mildred had never done. Montag feels nothing because Mildred's life was wasted, misspent, came to zero. All she did was care about her own fleeting happiness, and cause no one else anything else but suffering, 
misery, guilt. Mildred was herself miserable, trying to maintain an illusion that she was not miserable, and she was so caught up in that Ouroboros of self-satisfaction that she touched zero other lives and made no other benefit. And the only thing that Montag feels is that lack, that emptiness, the fact that a life should have been touched, his own. It was his wife, for God's sake, and yet wasn't. And in that moment, he remembers, at long last, the answer to the question that Clarice originally asked him, when did you meet your wife? And Montag remembers it was in Chicago, in a hotel room in Chicago. That was where they met. And that's all that he remembers. That's all that mattered to him. One fleeting moment so many years ago that he couldn't even remember it today because he had weeded it out, distracted himself with all of the other nonsense going on in his life. In a sense, this destruction is senseless. It is cruel, it is violent, it is horrible, and we are meant to see it as a horrible waste. But in another sense, the bomb doesn't do anything. In the same way that Montag bursts open the television tube and a vacuum is what escapes, the bomb blows up a city and all that is destroyed is nothing. Emptiness. Vacuum. The television bulb has broken. The illusion can no longer be maintained. From nothing to nothing. And all that these people can do is go back into the city and hope that somebody's willing to listen. That somebody is willing to hear them out and add some substance to their lives now that the vacuum and the illusion have, has been completely destroyed. Now maybe there is a chance for substance again. Maybe. But there are no guarantees. There are no promises. Only some vague, half-known hope. And it's appropriate that Montag's connection here is to the book of Ecclesiastes. That the quote that he sort of goes out on is that business about there being a time for everything. A time to build and a time to break down. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Yes. And on either side of the river was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The last thing that Granger tells us about, the sort of crux that this whole book has been building up to, Granger emphasizes that eventually they're going to get to the city and they're going to try and help, and many of them aren't going to listen to them, but maybe if you just keep on carrying this knowledge... Maybe unlike the phoenix who just stupidly and foolishly burns itself up and re is reborn from the ashes each time, maybe human beings will finally be able to break the cycle, be able to be aware when they come out of the fire of how stupid they've been. And someday, he says, we'll remember so much that we'll build the biggest goddamn steam shovel in history and dig the biggest grave of all time and shove war in and cover it up. That's the key here. What Bradbury is ultimately getting at, the reason why this illusion doesn't work, the reason why this happiness society is so doomed is because it doesn't get away from the war. In fact, it makes the war that much more inevitable. Bradbury is afraid, in short. Here at the beginning of the Cold War, he recognizes that the bliss that everyone is talking about is just ignoring the horror that is lying underneath. 
yes, maybe someday that bliss will be possible. Maybe someday that bliss will be justified. Maybe someday that bliss will be defensible. But first, war has to go in the grave. We cannot risk it anymore. That danger is too great. And all of those people just willfully ignoring the substance, the potential dangers, is just making war that much more inevitable. The dumbing down of society makes us more inclined to war, not less. It takes a person who is aware, who is conscious of the contradictions, who is in love with the multifaceted variety and complexity and nonsensicality of life to see war as the ultimate threat to that life and to that happiness. Without that, there's no impetus to put it in the grave. Propaganda has always led to war. Stupidity and the dumbing down and conformity has always led to war. And Bradbury condemns it outright for that reason. We have to be conscious. We have to remember. We have to see the suffering in order for war to ultimately be put to rest. Which maybe brings us back to that scene where Montag is talking to the ladies. We've seen multiple times that Bradbury has some of his most poignant stories circulate around a poem. You know, back in the Martian Chronicles, twice, if not more, we saw a poem being recited as this sort of central thematic resonance point. You know, first Byron's poem, um, sort of talking about, like, the lost civilization of the Martians that, you know, our, our poor protagonist was trying to... to uh, to sort of like respect and honor. And second, that, that house that was automatically reciting this one poem as it was defunct, totally without purpose, because all the people who had once lived there were dead. Here our poem is from Dover Beach. The sea of faith was once too at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor health, help for pain. We are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. This is the image that Bradbury is showing us in this novel. This is the picture, the essence of this dystopia, keenly summarized. This is not a place of happiness, or joy, or love, or life. It is a place where wars are taking place in the background, where we struggle pointlessly until that has been solved, where ignorant armies clash by night. And it is important to note that Mrs. Phelps cries when she hears this. The illusion is torn away for a moment. This poem speaks so deeply to her reality that she cannot afford or is not capable of looking away the way that she has been for so long. Montag gets mad. Like, Montag is angry at these ladies for being so oblivious, for being so ignorant. But in some sense, Mrs. Bowles is right to condemn him. 
You see, I knew it. That's what I wanted to prove. I knew it would happen. I've always said poetry and tears, poetry and suicide and crying and awful feelings, poetry and sickness, all that mush. Now I've had it proved to me. You're nasty, Mr. Montague. You're nasty. And she's right. He is. It was cruel to do this to them. Faber told him not to, not just because, you know, it would potentially expose himself, though that's clearly the obvious reason, but because they're just not ready for it. As Granger emphasizes, if they don't want it, they're not going to take it. You can't force it down their throats. And the only thing that Montag does in this moment is drive all three of these women, his own wife, who immediately goes into the bathroom to take more pills, Mrs. Bowles, who, commit, who condemns them and leaves the house, refusing to ever step in again, and Mrs. Phelps, who is just beside herself at this point, Montag just makes everybody miserable. Nobody wants to hear that shit. Nobody wants to listen to these stories of misery, to have their illusions just broken before their eyes. Yes, it needs to happen. It desperately needs to happen. If not, they're just going to eventually destroy themselves the way that this entire civilization tears itself apart. Stand back from the centrifuge, Granger tells him. So what do we do then? How do we fight back against this? If this is in fact the tendency of our entire world, if in fact the public just wants their happiness machine to keep on spinning, if they are more than happy to just watch TikTok videos and ignore the wars and ignore the violence and so on and so forth, how do we stop it? Bradbury says we can't. Admittedly, Bradbury is kind of doing his own work to do this. He published the book, after all. This is a cautionary tale. As Neil Gaiman puts it in his introduction, this is a what-if story, but not a this-will-happen story, not a prophetic one. Bradbury's got his fair share of prophetic stories. Like, we'll probably bump into a couple in the Illustrated Man. Or maybe not. But what Bradbury is doing here is making his contribution, saying this is what the world could, like, could be like if we don't stop the trajectory we are currently in. And to some degree, at least since 1951, we have changed tack. The sexual revolution, the civil rights movement, all of a sudden in the 60s, a lot of people were paying a lot of attention to a lot of that porous, textual, or textural, real, intelligent stuff. But it's been a long time since the 60s, and I'm not sure where we're at in that progress here. I'm not sure whether our generations to come are ready to fight for Montag, or if they're ready to fight for Beatty. I'm not sure how many of us are equipped to, in fact, confront the realities of the world that we live in. How many of us are intellectually or emotionally prepared? I think for most of us, we are perfectly happy to just let that merry-go-round keep on spinning. And for the few who do fight back, I think Bradbury is right. Nobody's going to be able to force the people who don't want to face this stuff to face this stuff. And even if they did, it's not going to help. The machine will keep on spinning. And to some degree, we have to face the possibility of the centrifuge flinging it to pieces. We have to face the possibility that the only way out is through. That sucks. That's horrifying. And I say that knowing full well that I don't want that to be the case and truly scared that it will be. 
that's where my faith comes in. Where I have to do more than just rationalize about people and society and so on and so forth. Where I have to admit the truth of Bradbury's statements here and instead sort of look to something else. This is where I turn to God. Where I turn to the Bible. And I think it's appropriate that Bradbury has the Bible at the center of this work. That it's Ecclesiastes and Revelation that Montague remembers. Ecclesiastes because it is the wisdom of cycles. Revelation because it is the tale of a new age. The tale of an apocalypse. The destruction of the world in the same way that Montague has just witnessed it. This is Montague's story in a sense. These are the two stories that are deepest, closest to his heart, closest to his own tale. So I look to those books as well. The wisdom of cycles embedded in Ecclesiastes and the wisdom of hope at the end of the world, as I find it in Revelation. I think Bradbury, Christian or not, saw importance to those things as well. The world won't save itself. The mechanics are too powerful. The mechanism too strong. People won't fight against their own self-interest, fight against their own illusory happiness. They would rather keep the TV on even as the nukes fall. Oblivion is a better price to pay than self-reflection. And that's really unfortunate, really unsatisfying, really scary. I don't really have much more to say on the Fahrenheit 451 front, not unless we're going to do like a real deep read, which wasn't the plan for this lecture series. So here I'm going to close it. I'm going to say that this is the message that Bradbury has for us, that Bradbury is hoping to avert our trajectory, and sitting here in 2022, I'm not sure how successful he actually was. I think this is a book we desperately need to revisit and reread and re-acknowledge the dangers of on a regular basis. And to stop treating it like it's just the book about censorship. Like, we need to see the depth and complexity here. All of the multitude of life streaming across its pages in infinite profusion. That's what Bradbury wants us to see. That's what Bradbury values about this work. That's what Bradbury values about all of his work. We need to see that it is complicated. Not simple. And its relationship to our world today is equally complicated and not simple. But for now, we need to move on. So next time, we are taking on Bradbury's short story collection, The Illustrated Man. And I am looking forward to sort of talking about the whole business of short story writing, especially because Bradbury is one of the greats on that front. And arguably, I'd say that his short stories are more consistently compelling than most of his novels. Um, but, you know... For some reason, I picked the novels to talk about, presumably because it's easier. Um, at any rate, we're going to read the first nine of the 18 proper short stories in the collection. Um, so we will end with The Last Night of the World and pick up with The Exiles in our second lecture. Um, look especially for the same themes that we've been bumping into a lot over the course of Bradbury's work as we read it. But also, again, pay attention to that infinite profusion. Bradbury has always been a writer of creativity, speculation, just wildly exchanging one set of characters, one set of ideas for another, and it's 
no better than in his short story collections where he can just fling these ideas at the wall and see what sticks. So I hope you enjoy our first nine stories. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.